Previewing 2024, How Voters Judge Presidents, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Despite relatively strong economic data, the public is sour. Judging President Biden poorly and putting him even or below former President Trump in early polling. How will polls and economic assessments evolve as we approach the 2024 election? Is it all different this time, or are we likely to repeat historical patterns? This week, I talked to Robert Erickson of Columbia University in a special edition previewing 2024. Erickson's data is what tells political observers that early polls are not predictive, but also what presidents are judged by their economic standing. He's produced some of the most important scholarship on using polls to predict presidential elections and understanding how citizens judge the president based on economic expectations. We also talk about the fate of Republicans' electoral college advantage, the divergence between the real and perceived economies, how voters balance the president and Congress, and whether we should still rely on polls. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So where are we uh, in the timeline of presidential elections? How good are polls at predicting the outcome now? uh, And why aren't they better? Better is an interesting frame of reference. The polls right now, uh, more often than not, are now showing Trump beating Biden. And and the trend has been sort of pro-Trump ever since 2021 began and and the matchups between the two. But it's still close if you take any average of the polls. So let's say it's 50-50, where we say, yeah, Biden's ahead, but, I mean, excuse me, Trump is ahead, but Biden's probably slightly favored, something like that. But then you say, well, what about the fact that Trump's under indictment? Uh, why don't why aren't we why isn't Biden getting supported for good times or good performance if you see that uh, and so on and uh, all those indictments and, and so uh, you might say if you do if, you, if you're not looking forward to a Trump return to the presidency it might seem very dis, disheartening you look at history and basically this time of year the polls to the extent we have polls in December before the election, it don't matter. So we know more. If we take polls in January of the election year with the two competing uh, candidates, the ones who eventually get the nominations, that the correlation is about zero. Uh, and so basically, uh, early polls in January have no predictive, predictive power. Uh, and so that could be reassuring to some people. On the other hand, um, we ask the reason why that is the case is because people generally aren't tuning into a presidential race early in the election year. It's still a year, a month from now, it would still be way too early. But what might be different here is that <clears throat> people might be more attentive this round than normal. And of course, people know Trump. He's not a stranger. So it was Trump versus, let's say, Nikki, or I should say, Biden versus Nikki Haley, let's say. I would say, well, we don't know. We, people don't know Nikki Haley yet, so we have no idea what's going to happen. But people know Trump. So basically, people people have already made up their minds. Of course, you have the age of polarization now. Look at earlier examples, electors were so polarized. So at least maybe we say we're going to have a close election. But then again, <clears throat> you can have some arguments why it won't be the case, because we have two uh, elderly candidates who we don't know how well they're going to perform on the stage. Obviously, we don't know for sure either one is going to be the candidate. They probably are, but uh, there's a chance each one would not be. I think Biden could still retire, drop out, 
if he thought somebody else had a better chance of beating Trump and he was really objective about it, or if he had worrying health issues. Uh, and presidents have done that before in election year when they thought they better run. Most recently, Lyndon Johnson surprised everybody in 1968. He, had, he could run for another term, and in March, he surprised the nation by not running. So Truman did the same thing and back way back in 1952. So that, so presidents decided not to run when they could. Uh, that's happened before. And of course, Trump could be caught because it's happened before. Front runners have been caught in the primaries. People don't say it's not going to happen, but it could be. Uh, DeSantis might be flailing a little bit, but it's Nikki Haley who's got some increased financial support, maybe a little wind at her back. So the usual pattern is that uh, voters uh, learn more about the candidates as we get closer to the election. They start paying more attention, and so the polls get better. But we're really looking at a rerun of last time here. Uh, it seems like voters should have good opinions of the candidates uh, so far. Um, can we really compare any historical cycle to this one uh, in terms of you know, the likelihood that, that voters have good information to make this choice already? Yeah, so let me just add one thing uh, that, you know, think of all the reasons for uncertainty, obviously, I do not believe I mentioned, I, I should I should mention the trials that may be occurring before the election. And, and you'd think that that would have an impact on the race. And so obviously, I want to think of reasons why we don't, we really can't predict, so many reasons we really can't predict what's going to happen. Uh, and and uh, that would be one of them. So you don't think uh, that this time is different in that voters have pretty firm opinions of the not oh, just oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, so they, they they do, but they could they could change. I mean, I suppose I could produce this hypothetical. Okay, here's a hypothetical. It's obviously hypothetical. Suppose it turns out that 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 Joe Biden and Hunter Biden really are the worst crooks crooks ever. Suppose it turns out that the worst claims about Biden that people like Rudy Giuliani say turn out to be true. You got to face the facts. Wouldn't Democrats turn on Biden in that situation? It's a hypothetical now. But if we're all wrong, this 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 nice old gentleman is really this 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 crooked Paul. If that were true, and similarly if people don't want to believe the worst about Trump and then they have to and they have to face it. That could be a different result. So we don't know that's going to happen. When say that's in the realm of possibility. So we're uh, usually uh, in the business of predicting the, the popular vote. But of course, there's been a divergence between the Electoral College uh, results and the popular vote in the last couple of elections favoring Republicans, meaning they haven't had to win a majority in the popular vote uh, to, to win the Electoral College. There are some initial signs, uh, comparisons between state and national polls this time and Biden's relative strength with older white voters um, that are leading some some folks like Nate Cohn at the New York Times to suggest that the Electoral College advantage for uh, Republicans may go down this time. So how should we think about that advantage as it's evolved so far and its likely future? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I think we might want to concentrate on just a few states. We think of, let's say, we'll, we'll start with Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, Traditionally, narrowly in the Democratic uh, corner, turning to Trump in 2016, 
but back to the Democrats barely in 2020. Okay. And because, and, uh, and of course, but Biden also barely won Arizona and Georgia, which may have been unexpe slightly unexpected. But he, with 52% of the vote nationally, a uh, two-party vote, 52-48, Biden barely won the Electoral College. Probably if Trump got a half a point more across the board, it would have been a tie in the Electoral College. In other words, the advantage was about 51.5%. That, that, that's a benchmark for the Democrats in 2020 anyway. You have to win 51.5% of the two-party vote, not 50%. So that's a bit of a hurdle. Republicans only have to win 48.5%. So we don't know what it is going to be exactly in 2024, but we can guess. As recently as 2012, the Democrats had the advantage. Right? Recall that Obama got virtually the same national vote that Biden did in 2020 for Biden, 2012 for Obama. And Obama had no problem winning the Electoral College. He would basically win all the states we're talking. He won the three major, three pivotal states in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Plus he won Ohio. He won Florida, Iowa, I think. So basically, uh, he won a whole bunch of states that, that Biden could uh, only dream about. And yet with the same amount of votes. So there, there, if the votes had been shifted a little bit so that was a tie in, the, in the, let's say, in the popular vote, Obama would have won. Basically, Democrats under Obama had the, had the Electoral College advantage, so it can shift. It's not the, it, it obviously depends on a few states what happens. So the thing is that Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania in recent elections in both 19, excuse me, both 2020 and 2016, in both elections, those three states have been slightly more Republican than average, instead of slightly more Democratic than average. And that made all the difference. Uh, other states that were, have been close in the past, like Florida and obviously and Ohio, for example, used to be battleground states, but they slipped more in the Republican direction and may be unattainable for the Democrats. Uh, so it's so how the states move. Now, Florida, or let's say Texas, or one of those st large states, Ohio, they start moving toward back to toward being more democratic than average, uh, that would tilt the electoral college advantage again. So what's going on in in, uh, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania? That's the question, I think. And of course, they tend to have older voters. Uh, I'm not sure that that enough is going to make a difference. Uh, but, you know, we'll keep an eye on it. So you normally uh, predict election outcomes uh, not only with uh, polling directly on the election, um, but with economic statistics and particularly these leading economic indicators. Um, and I noticed that they're not quite as positive as some of the other indicators people are using, um, like uh, employment uh, and disinflation. Um, right now, um, wh why are they traditionally predictive, uh, and and what do they what do you make of their their predictions for twenty twenty four? Well, if you try to predict the election from the, from the economic conditions, unemployment rate and inflation rate actually are not the best. Probably the best predictor would be, let's say, per capita income growth, but as you go from quarter to quarter. Uh, something like that. That'd probably be the best single predictor. Maybe inflation secondarily, but uh, uh, obviously inflation 
we're talking about inflation. Obviously, inflation is slowing, but what might be important is the level of prices, which people still feel from past inflation. But per capita income growth, I haven't looked at it that carefully, but I don't think income income has grown as much as you might think, given the, given the full employment. And that might be, that indicator is not as, uh, as, pro, as prosperous, let's say, as we might think it might be, from what I, from what I look at. I think in one recent quarter, it actually went down from looking at the, at the preliminary data. So um, that could be why maybe people, maybe more people have jobs, but they're, but they're not great jobs and they're not happy. That might be part of it. Uh, but in any case, the the other way to look at it, of course, would be the subjective indicators where people think the economy, people think the economy is doing. There, it's not great. People don't think the economy is great right now. Normally, the the objective, more normally the. Um, Object, subjective economy, what people think how school been going the past year, reflects how it goes in the past year, and it hasn't been hasn't done that so much. Um, and so that's and of course there's that that when people are asked how Biden's doing in the economy, that's one of his worst worst uh, uh, areas. And people like thirty some percent maybe giving up high marks for the economy when when we have record unemployment. Record employment, I should say, uh, and inflation is now seemingly under control. So uh, it, it adds a little bit of mystery to it, to why why Biden doesn't get credit. Maybe it's the same reason he doesn't get credit for foreign policy prowess because maybe it's all the polarization that people can't change their minds. Maybe it's that people see it through the filter that he's just an old man. Uh, struggling, I don't know what it is. Or basically, he, he doesn't. Or it could be a simple lack of charisma. I mean, he doesn't basically excite people, and and uh, people might fall asleep during his speeches. So there is a bit of a, a debate about uh, income growth, um, and part of the reason is because of the stimulus programs that expired in 2022. So the people who say that this is important say that, well, no wonder people aren't very happy because they got temporary gains in 2021 and then they lost them in 2022. Um, of course, they haven't, you know, kind of continued to, to lose them uh, in, in 2023. Um, but uh, same thing, same kind of question people have about inflation. Is it just the latest inflation or are people comparing, you know, to a previous era before uh, Biden was, was elected? So what do we know about that? How long are voters' memories? Is it really just... Oh. That's, year of the economy, that's, or a, is it that's a good more? question. People are coming to that conclusion, I suppose, that basically that's how inflation works. Like I said, I, I myself might try to make a purchase or something I haven't purchased in a long time and find that seems high. It still goes on, right? We still think prices are high compared to the way they used to be. It's just that they're not even, they're just not growing even higher. But of course, you can say, well, the president doesn't have that much to do with it, so he's just a victim of events, but. But um, part of it is too that it's not basically the events that go even how you play the cards you dealt. And basically, people don't see, even if you explain the cards well, people don't necessarily see Biden doing 
So you uh, have looked at uh, this divergence between perceived uh, and real or or as measured economic performance before. And of course, they're usually more associated than they are now. Um, But there were a couple of elections, I think, that you found 2008 and 2012, where there was a divergence. Um, And uh, in in those, uh, I I think you found that perceptions weren't all that uh, important by the time we got to the election outcome. Is that... Well, the government perceptions do become important as you come to the outcome. So basically, early on, they're not that important. Okay, so let's say this is one of the most stunning facts, I think, that uh, Chris Relation and I found in our research, that that if you look at perceptions of the the economy, let's say April of the election year, it doesn't even predict the poll results in April. You're looking at perceptions of the economy in October and November. They, of course, predict the election pretty well, obviously not perfectly, but uh, somehow between April and November that the, that the perceptions crystallize uh, in a way that, or more importantly, the vote moves in the direction of perceptions. So uh, that would be... That would be it goes. So, if let's say uh, if Biden could get the perceptions to match what some people say is a good economy, uh, that would have a bit of a delayed effect. But basically, between April and November, that would be the trajectory in favor of the good economy. Or even better yet, if you had a good economy and let's say you want to take an objective measure of what's going to happen be the leading indicators, but as you know, the leading indicators aren't that leading economic indicators aren't looking that good right now. But that doesn't mean they're not going to look good uh, percentage-wise in a couple of months. So it's possible. So that's a bit of uncertainty that could work either way. Um, in a past election, sometimes we see a president zooming to a landslide, often coasting on a good economy that's growing during the election year. But it's not necessarily foreseen statistically the year before, like right now. Uh, the economy right now doesn't have much predictive power, no matter how you want to measure it. So, so much is in the future. And if we want to see the ejected economy in the future, we start looking toward the leading indicators. If they start looking better, that's good for Biden. If they don't, that's bad because it suggests the objective economy is going to not be good. It usually follows the leading indicators a few months later. And if they are good, does the, does the perceptions begin to follow? And if they do, and Biden's not, and so if they do begin to follow, and perceptions are, hey, the economy is good, but the polls aren't showing it yet, wait a while, and then maybe Biden would be happy. So in other words, the, 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 the events are sort of layered. You have to watch the different signs, the leading indicators, the objective economy, the perceived economy, and you obviously watch the polls along the way. So as you mentioned, polarization is um, a threat to, to some of these uh, predictive relationships uh, of the of the past. In particular, 
economic perceptions um, changed real fast around election results. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> in uh, in two thousand eight, suddenly you know re- Republicans uh, hated the economy more after the election, and uh, Democrats liked it more. And then in uh, twenty sixteen, you saw the reverse, and in yeah. twenty twenty, the reverse again. And we're talking big moves like. 40 point moves in in how people feel about the economy just based on who won. So it sure seems like partisanship is coming first here. Uh, Not that people are updating their uh, political attitudes based on their economic attitudes. So yeah, absolutely. It's like, obviously there's, obviously there's a signal in the the perceptions of the economy should not ignore it. But particularly if you look at individual perceptions, they're obviously tinged by partisanship. And so for example, Let's say, this example I would use, let's say it's 2008. It's the fall of 2008. You're interviewed about the election. You want to vote for McCain. You probably, you, uh, even though the, the, you have a Republican president, Bush, McCain trying to succeed him, and you're asked, how's the economy going? You might say it's going great because that'd be, that'd be a rationalization. And if you did... We wouldn't. We would just probably dismiss it because nobody would think the economy is going great and vote based on that perception. You might think the economy is going great because you're totally ignorant, but that wouldn't be the basis of your vote. So it's, you know, basically, it's the uh, uh, you have to take the average, and basically, I suppose we should look for the independent voters. Now, from data I've seen, that uh, that these partisan divides on the economy, which are great these days, that you point out, weren't that bad. Not that many years ago, but basically Democrats and Republicans saw the same economy. Not so much anymore. But obviously there's lots of independent voters and other ones who are going to decide the election anyway. And we should figure out what they have in mind. So you've also historically argued that uh, citizens make uh, prospective assessments rather than just responding to the the current or past state of the economy. Um, How well do these uh, findings hold in the in the current uh, era um, and what do they imply about Biden's approval? Well, first of all, assessments of the future economy, that prediction, well, people see the future economy, matter the most, but really matter for, for whether people approve the president's performance or not. So uh, people think the economy's gloomy now, that's going to hurt, or going, to, going to stay bad or get bad, that hurts Biden more than whether what they think. It's happened recently. But if you're trying to predict the election, perceptions of the future economy aren't that good. It don't work that well. The reason is, you know, if you think the, if people generally think the economy is going poorly, they might think they have a reason for optimism later because uh, they think if, if they think the economy is going poorly, not poorly now, they think that the president might be replaced which is a reason for optimism. So if, let's say if you were back in 2008, you were, you were a voter thought the economy has been going bad, you might say it's going to get better because we're going to elect Obama. So uh, there's also a divergence between how people uh, today describe their own personal finances and the economy as a whole. Yeah. I think traditionally um, the the uh, perceptions of the economy as a whole have have been more important. Um, is, is that true? And if so, why? Yeah, that is uh, that would be important because 
if people try to take into account how the government is affecting them, and let's say they have a windfall or, or a bad economic luck, they win a lottery or they get fired, they don't blame the president or, or praise the president, right? Uh, but if, they, if they're aware of the economy around them, they realize that could affect them. The economy around them can affect them. And maybe, and maybe they think the president is responsible for that, right? And, uh, and so that's, and so that's why uh, the overall like, perception of the overall economy seems to be more important than than the, than, per, than your personal economy when it comes to certainly when it comes to presidential approval and also election results. So we've been uh, talking about it as a kind of an evaluation of performance of the current uh, president, um, but there might be um, some ideological judgment going on as well. And I know that you've found uh, that uh, presidents, people do judge presidents' ideological positions relative to their own, um, and that you know we might have uh, an update as to how the, if the president's gone too far in one direction um, from. Uh, uh, some of this. So right now we have a liberal but not left-moving public, uh, if you believe the latest yeah. uh, Stimson public mood measures. Um, and Biden's position, you know, maybe he's perceived as less less moderate than he was when he was elected the, the first time relative to the Democratic Party. Um, how, how do those fit in? Yeah, so I think that the, the uh, ideological positioning matters more than we might think. So uh, how to apply that in this case is difficult because it's not all ideology, of course, not claiming that at all. Uh, but but Biden's policy is relatively moderate for an electorate, which is actually a little more liberal than it's sometimes in the past right now. So that should help Biden. On the other hand, a couple things. The, Democ the Democrats don't get such a good rating as a party these days for performance. And some of the readings of party identification show the Republicans really getting close to par with the Democrats, whereas historically that's not the case. So that would be a worry for the Democrats. I mean, it's obviously ideological proximity. People want a president who is ideologically compatible, but they also want some uh, a party that can run the country, right? And somehow the, the Democrats seem to be failing that test in some cases, to some extent according to public opinion polls. That can be frustrating if you don't believe that, but that's what, that's what, that's what a lot of polls show. The other thing is, that if you're judging Trump, what's his ideology? He's not an ideological person. He's not, a, he's not about to disband Social Security or Medicare. At least he says he's not. There might be a dog whistle in that direction, but that's no more than that. And... And so basically, by traditional kinds of conservatism, maybe he's not so much a conservative, uh, more like a nationalist, let's say, and hard to classify in the, in the, by the traditional conservative liberal dimension. Biden, Biden on the other hand, sort of a classical, I guess, moderate Democrat, a moderate left Democrat. So uh, we've been talking about this as a U.S. Uh, pattern, but obviously there's evidence uh, in democratic systems everywhere that um, ruling parties are judged partially on uh, how the economy is doing. Um, and there does seem to be a pattern now, uh, which is not good for ruling parties. That is, uh, Biden actually has the highest approval in the G8 uh, vote share uh, in the, the post-COVID uh, uh, leadership seems to be declining, whether the uh, ruling party is on the left or the right. Uh, 
should we how should we interpret that? Does that mean that we are kind of in, interpreting this economy wrong? Maybe inflation has more negative effects than than we know, or um, you know, does that can we can we extrapolate from that to uh, what's likely to happen here? Yeah, I, I, can, I suppose you can only speculate, but but um, over the past decade, at least starting with with Brexit, maybe before we've had this rise of populism. Uh, across democracies, right? And so, the, the glory days of democracy after the fall of the Iron, after the fall of the Soviet Union and the satellites, has sort of sort of ended. And uh, so, uh, so former Soviet republics have often backslided. Uh, other other democracies have, and then of course, of course, that's in terms of moving toward a more authoritarian right. And, and then in Western Europe, we've had sort of populist movement, which is toward uh, toward the toward the right. Certainly, the Brexit movement in Britain was an example. I mean, for example, I think that there was the prime minister at the time, Cameron, made a big blunder by calling for a referendum on on on, 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 joint, on belonging to the European Union, and, and he lost big time. Should have been aware there's a big uh, undercurrent of opposition to, to the EU in this country. And we see it in other European countries now, perhaps in Netherlands and other other countries. It's hard to find a country in Europe where you say, where you say that old fashioned liberal democracy is, is, is totally healthy. And often it's the right wing that's, that's basically more dominant than usual. And of course, Argentina is another example where. Uh, and, and, and in a lot of countries, things like immigration are support, obviously inflation. So as an Argentina, so it's a, it's a variety of things that are basically worldwide phenomena, I think. So is that, I mean, so we saw the pattern also after the Great Recession that, um, you know, ruling parties didn't do well if they were in power at the time of the Great Recession. Um, yeah. Seems to be true very recently this time that, you know, the you know, Biden's not that popular, but neither, you know, the ruling party's not popular in Canada or the UK or Australia right, right. or New Zealand. So it just seems like uh, maybe there's some general unhappiness beyond yeah. just right left trends. Yeah, that... yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Aiken and Bartels, with their book, with, with, with their, with their uh, book, make one interesting point that during the Great Depression of the 30s, whoever was in power, left or right, became unpopular. Whoever it is, it's not ideological like left or right, but basically you're in charge. We like the other team better. And that's the, that would be the direction where elections went at that time. Maybe the same thing is going on right now. And maybe in some countries, people on the left were unfortunate enough to be in power at the wrong time. So uh, we've been talking about the presidential election so far, um, but obviously we'll have elections for the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate um, next year. And uh, certainly they're going to be strongly associated. Um, but uh, the Republicans in the House did outperform uh, Trump in both of the previous uh, elections by, by a few points. And I know that you've uh, found in the past that you kind of have two phenomenon, one where uh, the congressional vote goes with the president's party um, and another where maybe people might anticipate uh, the pre the president would get elected and uh, and vote for the other party. So explain how those dynamics work and how it might matter next time. Okay. 
Okay, so there's two phenomena going on. There's, presidents have coattails. We're familiar with that. That if people, if people are going to vote for the president, they're, like, they're more likely than not to vote for the president's party for other offices like Congress. So basically, if a, Democrat, if a let's say the Republicans win in a landslide for president, they're going to better than average for, for Congress because of coattails. On the other hand, if they think the president is for, is for certain going to be, let's say, a Republican, they might want to say, well, it's more reasonable democratic to buy, to balance. So we got two processes going on. So let's say if a president wins in a real landslide, uh, you, you know, you know, his coattails be enough to give him a majority, let's say, in the Congress, but not so much that would that then then if it, people didn't see the landslide coming. So, for example, presidents often have a bigger, better Congress when they first get elected because people don't anticipate it, think it's going to be close. They don't take it. They don't vote their expectations. They just vote for coattails. Uh, and then in the, in the second election. When the, when the president wins by a bigger mar- margin, there are coattails, but they're offset by the, the coattails are still there, but they're off, offset by the, by the balancing that people like to be cautious about supporting that party, which is certain is going to get reelected. So let's say that if the election is really close, the people see it's going to be close, that all this gets offset, doesn't matter. But the interesting circumstance would be if the election is seen as one-sided, but but the, but it's an upset. The one party expected to win loses. Like let's say 2016 when Trump won an upset, people uh, then but then they get a special bonus because people, the winning upset president gets extra congressional seats from from voters who were voting for his party to balance the loser who did not win. In other words, a lot of people. Voted Democratic in 2016 for Congress, not a lot, but enough did, to, to voted for Hillary Clinton. Excuse me, they voted for Republican to balance the fact that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president, so they thought. Obviously, she was not. The biggest instance of that case was back in 1948, when the famous upset where Dewey was supposed to beat Truman, the Republicans were supposed to win the presidency, and and the Democrats won by won Congress, when the House of Representatives by gaining something like like 80 seats or something like that, some tremendous gains in the House. And they were voting Democratic to block President Dewey, and yet instead they elected Truman with a big Democratic Congress. And so if if the, if the, if the perceptions are a factor, but they're wrong, you get a, you get the, you sort of get the unintended consequence. In that case. A Democratic president upset, which apparently the electorate wanted, but with a big Democratic majority, which they didn't, which it did not attend, assuming that Truman would have won. So how does that how that would affect twenty twenty four? I don't know, but except that if we're sure that Biden's going to beat Trump and he doesn't, Trump will have his majority in Congress. So there used to be a debate uh, about uh, whether we should be using um, f- for forecasts things like poll results, which are directly asking people uh, about the election, but aren't necessarily what we used to call the fundamentals, um, things that uh, might matter uh, for the election outcome independent of 
uh, just preferences over the the candidates. Um, what's the state of that? Have have we learned uh, anything about how much these these fundamentals yeah. matter, or what is a fundamental? That's a great question. I think that early in the campaign, or maybe at this stage, pre-campaign, um, we'd say, well, we'd say, well, uh, the, the polls show such and such, maybe something like a close election, but the fundamentals favor party X. And so we'd predict with some confidence that the, that the, elect, that the, that the poll trend between now and election day would move in favor of party X because the fundamentals favor them. Well, what are the fundamentals now with the, hey, the economy is pretty good, favors Biden, it's got to get better, but the people don't think so. Uh, we might take into account, uh, oh, uh, people are afraid that democracy is in trouble, uh, that that Trump wants to be a dictator or something, and, and people take that into account. Or there are all these trials coming up. These are part of the fundamentals, I guess, now for, with Trump. And... Or not, we don't we, we we don't know till after the fact. I guess what these are going to be. But normally, we would say the economy is an obvious one. And all the signs go in one direction. But we've been talking about how conflicting the various signals are, so we don't we don't know what those fundamentals are. And I think that's why we have a certain degree of uncertainty. You know, things can happen. Like like in twenty twenty, you couldn't predict that election because of COVID and the and the and, and the lockdowns and the and and the government response. It was just couldn't use it normal indicators. At least I wouldn't. So uh, one alternative is to go with uh, prediction markets, um, which can incorporate some of this additional uh, in information. Um, but I, in previous work you've shown uh, aren't necessarily better than, than polling if you just account for how the polls are likely to move um, o- over time. So I- is it the best that we're going to do, even though it's it's not very predictive at this uh, well, point? I, I, or- Oh, I'd, I'd look at the prediction markets, even though uh, they, they typically reflect the polls. So this question is, do they offer anything beyond the polls? Like the, the polls the polls predict the prediction markets, but, but basically with a little tweak, which might be wrong rather than right. And so uh, I, I pay attention to it, particularly at an early stage. If you can anticipate certain things that might happen and their effect, like right now, I'd say, what's the effect of all these trials going to be? Or what's the effect of, of Biden's age? Or whatever you wanted to say. It's all reflected there in the prediction market, you think. And so you might want to take that into account. Uh, as, as a campaign progressives, we're talking about next year, we're really trying to get serious, that maybe the prediction, prediction markets don't have that much more to offer because they have the polls and this total guesswork, everything else is pretty much laid out. That might be the case. Let's say in summer or fall of 2024. Uh, and one thing about prediction markets is that the prices often reflect too much anticipation of volatility at that stage. Like In other words, as the election gets closer, the cake is baked, not much is going to happen. If somebody's ahead by election day, they're at least going to win the popular vote. Okay? But we might still think that all kinds of things can happen magically over the, over the next two months, but rarely does, or at least enough to change it. So prediction markets might reflect that thinking of volatility, but in other words, you overpredict the volatility. And, might, and therefore, they might overestimate the chance of, of long shots. 
So what about your subjective personal forecast for 2024, Bob? When do you allow uh, your own uh, view to differ from uh, the, the quantitative uh, models? Uh, and, and how often are, is your personal prediction the same as, as your models? Uh, first of all, if I, if I start plugging in some kind of quantitative model now, including anything I might come up with, uh, based on the past, it would not be very good. Look at that low R square. It doesn't predict much at all. Okay, so that's the first thing. And secondly, uh, so normally I'd say it's, it's early. Okay. Obviously, there's reasons why things might be, reasons why things might be uh, stuck in place because, of, for example, we know the candidates, et cetera. We talked about that. But obviously, things where they might be, don't know where they're going. How are the candidates going to going to evolve with their through the geriatric campaigns? Um, what about the trials, uh, etc.? These are obvious unknowns, more than usual. So, I would say that uh, 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 the Republicans start out with a better a better position. We might think, given what we otherwise know right now. So uh, the polls, although not predictive now, uh, will get predictive as we get uh, closer to the election, according to um, our historical data. But um, is a poll conducted in previous elections really the same as a poll conducted now when only 2% of people that we try to reach actually want to respond to the the poll? uh, And a lot of what is released as a public opinion poll now is more like from an online uh, uh, panel uh, of people who've opted in to take um, surveys regularly uh, and a lot of modeling. So, um, you know, of course, we always used to wait data, but um, what comes out as poll results now is more of a mix of modeling and uh, polling than than we used to do. So uh, are, are we... Looking when we're looking at historical data on the relationship between polls and election outcomes, is there a reason we should doubt that that's going to work? Keep working the same if the uh, quality of, of polling is deteriorating. That's a that's a good question. If we if we could talk about how sausage is made and, and how polling is done these days, as you point out, so with maybe two percent re- response rate, etc., uh, and opt-in polls, so. Obviously, that modeling is necessary, particularly, I, I think, particularly if we t- consider post stratification. We try to get, try to weigh voters by, so, so that way respondents, so that you get the same proportion of different, uh, different demographic categories. But then again, is that always enough? It's that kind of question. So, what, so one answer is the pollsters have to get it right or to be out, be out of business. So, let them do their, let them do their work. I think because they know the pressure's on them and they know that so uh so they do the best they can we might, uh and if, if trump is not on a ballot they do very well these days to my surprise i mean how they do it like the last midterm elections with the quality polls did very well same uh, you know there's some junk polls out there but the quality polls did very well predicting 2022 2018 trump not on the ballot off your elections like 2023, I think they did fine. They didn't have any big upsets, right? They got the, they got the state elections. They got these things right. Um, 
With Trump on the ballot, maybe it's a little different, a little harder, and Trump will be on the ballot probably, and so we have to have another caution what that means. Is that people people support Trump don't want to reveal it, they don't want to be bold. Is some, some kind of, and, and, and at the same time, you want to push that too hard because basically even the 2020 election wasn't, or 20, even 2016 or 2020 weren't that far off. Both just mispredicted 2012 the other direction over... Uh, uh, they underpredicted, underpredicted Obama's support a little bit, so they're never going to be perfect. And there's always something out there to miss. Now we've been talking about it mostly as um, the, the rationale for voters making decisions between uh, the the two candidates uh, over ideology, over the economic performance, etc. But there's a whole other category of people who believe that uh, elections are relative turnout contests um, between one side uh, or or the other, uh, and certainly some politicians who believe that they they have majorities if only they could get them to to participate. So um, should should we be taking how much should we be taking that into consideration, or well, is that just likely to move in the same yeah, same direction? Turnout, turnout is turn like for example, there's high turnout help Democrats. It would be a one typically way we think about it. Like somehow, Democrats would be some kind of low achiever, lazy voter who only comes out of certain circumstances where Republicans always turn out, something like that. And a bit of evidence in that direction is that Republicans seem to better likely voter polls than registered voter polls. So people people who are registered aren't as, as Republican as a, as a large subset of them who are likely to vote as opposed to unlikely. That gap is lowering, I think, in large part because Democrats represent the kind of people who love to vote. And, um, and so I, I, I don't think turnout is becoming that big a deal. Now, of course, people could be, get surprised. Uh, most people who register do vote in the presidential elections. I'm surprised how high it is. Maybe if you believe the polls on this, it might be over 90%. If you're registered, you're almost certain to somehow make it to make it to cast a ballot. So you're worrying about an 8% that doesn't show up. That's trivial almost. Uh, so maybe the registered and, and the registered and the likely or actual voters are almost the same people now. So it's not as big a worry as before. I think there is a danger in over, particularly early in the campaign, in overestimating likely voters because likelihood, certainly at this stage, if you look at likely voters a year from the election, who knows who's going to vote? If you base likely voters on a, on a very instrumental terms about interest in the election, those people who express interest now, or even the people who are willing to talk to pollsters now, are going to be, might be different from those who do the same thing a year from now. And so it's, I think that's meaningless. But um, so so I, I would tend to look at registered voters. If there's a look at the gap between registered and likely voters, if there is one, if there is, maybe at, at a, at a, particularly if the if a, particularly if the likely voter poll goes slightly more in the Republican direction, maybe add a little edge to the Republicans beyond what registered voters show. And I take that into account. Some polls do show uh, you have a very heavy screen on likely voters. Which means that the pollster, their polling bounces around a lot because it depends on who's excited, which party's excited. And that's, and I don't think that's very useful because that kind of excitement is short lived. There's a lot more to learn. 
The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. How Republicans Lost 2018 by Being Too Close to Trump, Interpreting the Early Results of the 2020 Election, When Information About Candidates Persuades Voters, Does the 2022 Election Show How Democratic Campaigns Win, and Will a Good Economy Save Trump? Thanks to Robert Erickson for joining me, and please listen in next time.